Amen. All right. Good morning, everybody. Man, welcome, Matt. So glad you are a part of our team. And uh, you guys did a great job. The chemistry, the vibes. It was like strong on week one. Hey, um, I want to highlight something. Speaking of, of welcomes and goodbyes, uh, one of our leaders is moving, and it's both sad and exciting. I want to honor Peg Reeves. I didn't ask your permission to do this. Uh, sorry, but hey, leave the church if you want. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Um, Peg is one of, uh, one of the heroes in our midst, in my mind. Um, Peg is well uh, into life and has just retired serving um, overseas missionaries as her work uh, and is moving now to Missouri, yes, to be near kids and grandkids, an amazing thing. And um, I think that the older I get, the more success looks like faithfulness, fighting the good fight finishing the race, keeping the faith. Now, you've got much more um, to do in your life, but you've been faithful, and you have done this work until the Lord said um, you're released from it in next season. You've served here in leadership in our church, and I just want to honor you. So we're going to miss you, uh, Miss Peg. Would you mind just turning and waving so everyone can see you? That's Peg. Can we just thank God for her? You know, there's a lot of... um, there's a lot of young people in Denver. There's a lot of young people in this church. And we've had too few examples of what right looks like following Jesus through the, the seasons of life. And uh, thanks for giving us one. We're going to miss you. Love you. Father, give us grace and wisdom as we jump into this new season in our church, uh, as we begin kind of the new school year, the new ministry year, and uh, as always, as we look to your word, cause us to find you in life abundant. It's in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. Ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be Maverick. Something about the year 1986 corresponded to my life kind of coming online. And, you know, I was, I was an early teenager, like late elementary, not teenager. I was, I was probably like 12, preteen. And he was everything cool, everything I wanted to be. Um, And so there was a brief window, I don't know if any of you guys experienced this, uh, during which I didn't live under anyone's roof who, while she drew breath, would never allow me to have such a motorcycle as that. I bought the bike. Uh, I like rode on the highway to the danger zone um, until I drove past somebody on a on his back in a pool of his own blood, and then I sold the motorcycle, but still lived on the metaphorical highway to the danger zone. And and so this summer, um, I was, of course, ecstatic when Maverick Top Gun 2 came out. The best movie of the summer. It might have been the best top five movies of all time for me for so many reasons. And if you're like, you can't talk about it. This is a spoiler. Hey, it has been out too long. It is past the statute of limitations. If you have not, sorry, if you have not seen it by now, you are most decidedly friends not on the highway to the danger zone. And so I'm totally spoiling it for you. It it was, we just saw it for the second time as we were camping. It rained all night. So Mari was like, let's go to the movies. So we took our boys to it. Amazing. But, you know, I think there's something in me that resonates with the hero who's kind of Lone Ranger doing it on his own, you know, the one that's misunderstood by society, like the Jack Bauer of the 2000s decade um, that sort of saves the world sacrificially every week anew um, or like every season, right? And Maverick, literally, his name 
with Maverick, like the guy that said on his helmet, I don't need any of you. I'm going to go do it my own way. And so he was always getting in trouble, right? Leaving his wingman and things like that. And really the story arc over two movies in 30 plus years is Maverick learning that he needs others and others need him. And there he's got a young Maverick and he's teaching him not to leave his wingman. And it's just such a complete and believable lifelong character arc evolving into this value for interdependence. And I think that phenomenon, that impulse to do it on our own, to be a big deal, to be a maverick and save the world kind of our way on our terms, it runs deep in us and it runs deep in the family of God. We're in Matthew chapter 16 to begin. If you have your Bible, open it there. If you don't, look up on the screen and read along. The Word of God teaches, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he asked them, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. And now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. We're beginning a new series looking at the church, what it is, what it is not, how it has been expressed, contorted, and misunderstood, and why it's so important. This series is predicated on one of our nine values as a church. We cherish the gathering of believers. Now, we cherish the believers in God. You'll hear us often quote from the Psalms, as for the saints in the land, these are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The saints of God give God great delight, but the gathering of believers is in many ways a dying art and we recognize its transcendent significance, and we cherish that. Out of that value comes a series called Church Is Blank. And each week we're going to explore from Jesus in the Scriptures what the church was created for, what it was intended to do, and whether and to what extent, and if so, how it is relevant in this post-modern, post-Christian, post-everything society. Jesus said when Peter recognized and called out that he was the Christ, the son of the living God, you're not Simon anymore, you're Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And a lot has been made. In fact, the understanding and interpretive energy around this passage has been hijacked by Peter's being renamed and Jesus saying, upon this rock, I will build my church and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, etc. And an understanding of this passage through the prism, through the keyhole of Peter and Jesus' pronouncement about him and saying on this rock and saying whatever you bind and whatever you loose and understanding that in the singular rather than the plural has given rise to the entirety of the Roman Catholic movement 
through centuries and millennia, which has, of course, done lots of good. But it's been built on this notion that there was a person who was the successor to Jesus, and he was the person among people, and he's the big deal. And what he does is how the church goes. And what I want to do is draw our attention, while leaving that aside, not dismissing it or calling it insignificant, we're going to leave the you are Peter, and upon this rock part for next week, we're going to come back to it, I promise. And I want to start with the phrase that came after that. Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. It's the first time Jesus references the church. The word here in Greek is ekklesia. You'll hear it pronounced various ways. Everyone who pronounces it a certain way says that his or her way is the right way, except that none of them lived when the language is spoken. It's dead. Everyone's guessing. Call it whatever you want, ecclesia, ecclesia. Um, it literally means in Greek, the called people. Now, what's important to note is the ecclesia was a word prior to Jesus using it. He didn't coin a phrase, right? It's not like Bitcoin or something that is synonymous with cryptocurrency. Jesus is just using a word that was used in common Greek parlance at the time uh, of, it, of Jesus living in first century Palestine. And it was literally the called people. Metaphorically or euphemistically, it was those called out or assembled in the public affairs of a free state. So it was those in the public square, if you will, those who were called together to work out what good and just society looked like. The body of free citizens called together by a herald. And Jesus says, this ecclesia, Lots of them have been assembled for lots of reasons, most notably and most recently and, and prominently in Jesus' contemporary time in the sphere of geopolitics. But he says, I'm going to build my ecclesia. Well, you can see why people misunderstood Jesus' mission to be about deposing Caesar or waging a revolution. But he says, I'm going to build my ecclesia, my gathering of those who are called out. In the New Testament usage, after Jesus doesn't so much coin the phrase, but kind of co-opts it for the purposes of the church as we know it, it is used repeatedly in the New Testament, chiefly by the Apostle Paul in his letters. And it denotes, according to one Bible scholar, the New Testament community of the redeemed in its twofold aspect. First, all who were called by and to Christ in the fellowship of his salvation. If you were called out of the world, out of bondage to sin, and into new life in Christ, you were called out. You are part of the ecclesia. And then secondly, it denotes the church worldwide of all times, and uh, sorry, the church worldwide of all times being the assembly of all those who have been called out. And then secondly, it refers to an individual or local congregation of those ones, those who have been called out and called in effect together. So it's twofold. It's, it's not two different usages, but it's one usage in New Testament idiom that has two sides of a coin of meaning, those who are called out of the world and those who are called together in one congregational community. Jesus says, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. I'm going to build my church and my church is going to be on mission. 
It's going in my name to take on all the powers of hell, and it's going to win. Our title this morning, Church is Plan A. Church is God's Plan A. I want to show this to you in the Word of God. Our series over the next several weeks will be predicated on this foundational concept. Jesus Matthew 16 proclamation around Peter on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It emerges out of Jesus' sayings and teachings in this, the last third of his life, as a sort of mission statement. And in his mission statement, you hear whispers of God's master plan. I will build my church. This is what I'm going to do. This was the time period after which Jesus set his sights, Luke said, resolutely on Jerusalem. This is when he begins to speak more plainly and becomes more dire and less seemingly carefree in his manner, culminating in his triumphal entry and then his death on the cross. Jesus develops this theme, I will build my church. Call it his mission statement. He develops this through a number of variations in his teachings and leadership expressions over the last year of his life with us on earth. And his agenda starts to emerge. Love one another. I give you not a new but an old command. Serve one another the way I washed your feet, so I want you to do that for one another. In Matthew 28, Jesus, according to Matthew, gives his last words before being taken up to heaven. He came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Think about it. He said, I have been given all authority. Every expectation is that that justification idea, that foundational premise would be followed by, therefore, come on and follow me. I'm going to go charge the hill and you guys do what you want. It kind of feels like a maverick statement. One more hero going rogue who's bigger, stronger, and just better than the rest of us. So you know what? All authority has been given to me. You all have mucked it up for a few thousand years now as God's covenant community. I'll take it from here. But look at how he proceeds instead. Very counterintuitive if you think about it. Take off the familiarity lens through which we often read the so-called Great Commission. And this is an incongruous statement. All authority has been given to me, Jesus said. Therefore, because of that, on account of that fact, you all go and make disciples of all nations. You hear whispers of a master plan. You see Jesus Mission statement echoed in this. I will build my church. I've been given authority. I'm building it. And you're my church. Go and make disciples of all nations. In Luke 24, Luke, the gospel writer of this epistle, this uh, account rather, and the book of Acts adds an additional detail. Jesus gives his so-called great commission and then adds to it in Luke 24, but I want you to stay here. Go and make disciples of all nations. Yes, ultimately, that's your charge. But first, stay here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Most of us know that Luke follows on his gospel account with a sequel called the book of Acts, as we refer to it. 
at which time the first notable event after they pick a successor to Judas is the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and he said, oh yeah, I want you to wait here until you're clothed with power from on high, until the Holy Spirit comes to give you power to carry out your ministry. And what we typically think of, and not wrongly so, is that he told them to stay because they had the mandate, but they didn't have the means yet. They needed to be able to go and do powerful individual acts. And we tend to understand Jesus' commission and his direction to wait and then subsequent empowerment on the day of Pentecost. We understand it through the prism of our culture's preference for mavericks, for the hero's solo journey, for every superhero's plight that we latch onto. We understand it to mean, oh, Jesus wasn't the superhero. We're the superheroes. We're going to get sent out to do it, but we have to wait till we individually, I in the singular, get the power to go do it, and then I'll go do it. Now, did he promise that we would do things he did in his name? Absolutely. But I want you to look at what actually happened on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. Follow me. we got a lot to cover. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place, doing, it would seem, what Jesus instructed them to do, sitting around Jerusalem and waiting for God knows what. But Peter's like, nope, I'm not going to deny him this time. We're going to wait. And so I can imagine they waited very intensely under Peter's leadership. And suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. And now, like those of us who come from the charismatic and Pentecostal traditions, we're getting fired up. Our blood's starting to pump harder. We're like, preach, because you're about to get to the powerful stuff that we get to go out and do. Not wrong, but read on. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, and by the way, if Jesus primary agenda. We're sending us out with power individually like he had power individually. Nobody that I saw in any of the four gospels followed Jesus, repented, had a transformational experience because Jesus came up on him and he's like, and spoke over them in tongues. That's not how Jesus did the individual works of power. It was healing. It was casting out demons. It was that kind of thing, right? So he was empowering us. The Holy Spirit is our source of power. I'm not undoing charismatic doctrine. But read the text for what's there and you see something different. The way the Holy Spirit's power manifest was in zero of the ways that the power of God manifests through Jesus in individual works of salvation and redemption. Do you follow me? Do you follow me? Okay, all right. Read on. They began speaking in other languages. Nobody in Jesus' time heard someone speaking in Mandarin and they're like, oh, now I gotta get saved. But this is what was happening. This is a totally different expression of the Holy Spirit's empowerment. As the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, they were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were baptized. uh, They were baptized. Where'd that come? They were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken. So people were from all over, 
It was a cosmopolitan environment. Nobody had Google Translate. So they were all pretty much sticking to their own pockets. Whoever was from this country and spoke this language was hanging out with people like him. Whoever was from that country and spoke that language was hanging out with people like her. They didn't have anything to do with each other. Have you ever been in an environment where you're around people from other nationalities and you just kind of pretend like one another's not there because you have a language barrier? That's what was happening in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost recorded in Acts chapter 2. Oh, this fires me up. Stay with me. They came running. They were bewildered because they heard foreigners speaking their language. They could understand one another. All of a sudden, they weren't disconnected. They had the opportunity to be connected. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people, and listen, he goes into great detail. So it's tempting to skip over because you get the point. If the point is he poured out the gift of tongues. I'm not saying that's not the point, but if the primary point was that what was happening there, we wouldn't get all this detail. Listen, these people are, from Gal- are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. Here's what I want you to see. Primarily, according to the text, the result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit's power for which Jesus told his disciples to wait before embarking on this great commission was that they could access one another. That was the great outpouring of power. That's what he told them primarily to wait for. They could connect. The Holy Spirit empowers us to fulfill God's purpose by bringing us together around Jesus. Do you see it? Do you see it? Are you as excited about this as I am? Clearly not. Admittedly, it's a work day for me. I had coffee early. You're just waking up. I totally forgive you, but this is so important. Here we are in Acts chapter 2, of which bands have been named, movements have started, denominations have staked their tents. And Jesus said, wait until you're clothed with power from on high, and then you go and make disciples of all nations. And the way that that power manifests was that they could connect. They could hear each other. They could understand and communicate and not be a bunch of individual mavericks who leave their wingmen, but that they could go and do it together. Jesus said, it's better for you all that I go away. Again, we tend to read this with modern Westerner glasses on, and we think me, you means me in the, in the singular. It's all about number, right? Singular, plural. Better for me, Rob, that Jesus go away. I don't know about that if I had Jesus with me, but only a handful of them had Jesus with them. And even of that small handful, only like three got to go to the mountaintop. Imagine like Bartholomew and Nathaniel. They're like, Peter, Peter, Peter. It's always Peter. Why does he get to go to the mountaintop? Nobody had equal access to him. He says, it's better for you that I go away, you in the plural. Why? Because you'll get the Holy Spirit. And when you get the Holy Spirit, you'll be able to connect. He's going to give you power in numbers. He's going to give you strength to bear witness and build my kingdom and proclaim the gospel and make disciples out of every nation. That's a good place to say amen. 
<laughs> See, if I were George, you'd be like amening up one side and down the other. It's totally unfair, and I resent you for it. He says the Holy Spirit will unite you and empower you to become my church. And so the result of this in Acts 2, verse 46, look what happened. They worshiped how? Together. They couldn't even order at a restaurant and have a meal together three hours ago. And now they're worshiping together. They're at the temple every day. They're meeting in homes for the Lord's Supper together. Cretans and Phrygians and Pamphylians, and I have no idea where all those people were from, but I'm guessing they were as suspicious and reticent of one another as we are today. And yet they're sharing meals with great joy and generosity. They're praising God all the while and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Think about the bad will that exists as the starting point. If you got a bunch of people in one tight, cramped space who all speak different languages and have different traditions and wear different clothes and eat different foods and they're all there together, there's some hostility, there's some tension. And what they experience now is the goodwill of all the people. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. All the while praising God verse 47, and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their ecclesia. It's the same word. Those who are being saved. Jesus said, I will build my church. Then he said, wait for it. I want you to be my church and accomplish my commission so badly. I want you to wait for power from heaven to actually do it. Jesus prayed one prayer for us, the church, the ecclesia, and it was that we would be one. And in our unity, the gospel would be seen in living color and on display. And in Acts 4, his prayer was answered. All the believers were one in heart and mind. I will build my church. Collectively, we're the representation of Jesus. He said, we are the body of Christ. We demonstrate his agenda, his goodness. We exemplify his compassion and mercy, his power to transform, heal, and restore. In the body of Christ, in the church which Jesus said he would build, the whole is vastly more than the sum of the individual parts. Another lone hero narrative that captured the imagination of generations, now three of them in counting, literally did so with the bait on the hook of a character whose name was Solo. Not very subtly masked, right? He was the maverick. He was the guy that didn't need the rest, that was above the law, that operated on his own agenda and by his own rules. Yet Star Wars wasn't a story over three generations of trilogies. It wasn't a story about independent heroism. It was a story about interdependence. And I think that's why I like it so much. There's, there's maybe a less natural character arc than Maverick's 30-year journey, 
but there is nonetheless a development of realization. I remember when I was a young adult, did, did you ever go into Spencer's Gifts as a teenager in the 80s? Any teenagers from the 80s who didn't go because your mom didn't let you? So you didn't. I did. And my mom would be like, did you go in Spencer's Gifts though? Because you know the posters in the back, there was those. So, I mean, he told me, I, I don't know. It's like, <laughs> did anyone ever like sneak into Spencer's Gifts? There was in, in Spencer's Gifts, this awesome, wonderful, magical poster. And it's made of a, bu of a bunch of individual scenes of Star Wars. Did you ever see this? And it's like, you see one scene and then there's like Luke saying, these are not, or with Obi-Wan and, and he's like, these are not the droids you're looking for. And then there's another with like Yoda lifting this land, the X-Wing out of the swamp. And you step back and the scenes are grainy and the colors don't quite align. But as you back up and you squint, you see less of the individual stories. And when you get like a certain focal distance, maybe like eight, 10 feet back, what you see is one contiguous hole. Wait for it. I tried to time it. We worked on this. You see one contiguous hole. So what you see is one contiguous hole. Did you ever see this poster? It's so cool. I mean, this is so awesome to me. But it's a picture of the body of Christ. We are all of us. <laughs> all right, I'm thrown. That, Chad, that was not supposed to be a joke. <laughs> Where am I? That was, it's a picture of the body of Christ. Pretend you're not laughing right now. Get serious. You're in church already. What are you doing? So what am I saying? The body of Christ is a Yoda head. No, not that. What I'm saying is Focus. It's a bunch of little, it's hard enough for me to focus while talking about Star Wars. Shouldn't be hard for you. It's a bunch of little scenes. It's all of our lives in different places on the journey, right? You're here, I'm there. You've got it all figured out. I'm clearly still formative in my journey, but we're where we are and then we come together and the seams don't always align perfectly and it's a little gritty, but you step back and you squint and you give it a little time and what you see is a picture of Jesus. He said, I will build my church. No promises about your church, your corporation, your big stage show with religious music. No promises about your political funding machine, but I will build my church. And listen, hell won't win. It is a church whose mission is clear and whose outcome is certain. In Ephesians chapter one, We'll wrap it up here. Paul writes, I pray you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. It's plural. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. I pray that you will understand all the expressions of his power for us, plural. The power that raised Christ from the dead miraculously transformed us from divided and hostile to united and loving. God has put all things under the authority of Christ. You hear echoes of his great commission here and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. For the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It's made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. God gave Jesus all authority for the benefit of the church, to empower the church to accomplish his work in the world. God's plan all along was to build a church around Jesus 
to redeem the world. Church is God's plan A. God's purpose in all this, Paul continues in chapter 3, was to, listen, use the church. His purpose in all of the redemptive plan was to bring us together and use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Church is God's plan A, God's grand design. It's not invented by humans and it cannot be undone. There was a lot of bumpiness in the road over the last two years and a lot of nonprofits had to shut their doors. But friends, make no mistake, there is no existential crisis for Jesus' church. He said, I will build my church. Hell will not prevail against it. It will persevere. It's a sure thing. It cannot be undone. It cannot be deconstructed. No matter how hurtful an experience any of us might have had with an unlovely expression of it. You cannot pull the yarn far enough that the sweater falls apart. God made him head over all things for the benefit of the church, and the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ, listen, who fills all things everywhere with himself. This is how God transforms communities and societies and generations through the church. He brings us together, builds us up, strengthens us, refreshes us, enlivens us, and then sends us out to fill everything, everywhere with Jesus. And that's why, friends, there is nothing secular. We talk in the Christian community a lot about secular music, or I have a secular job, and we treat it a little bit less than. There is no secular. There is only sacred and sacred waiting to happen. God created all of it, and his intention is to redeem all of it. And he does that by filling all of it everywhere with himself. Now, he might come with like the little, the little cake filling thing and squirt some of himself into it. But as it turns out, the mechanism by which he chose to fill all things everywhere with himself is the church. To use the church to send the message to this fallen world and the powers that temporarily hold it in sway. Make no mistake, God will prevail. He will set this world to rights. He is making all things new. He's filling everything with himself. Finance and law, medicine and education. He's filling every sphere of enterprise, community life, youth soccer, homes, neighborhoods. He's filling it all with himself through you. This is God's grand design. Friends, make no mistake about this. We are not consumers of a religious product called church. We are missionaries to this 
post-Christian generation. About half of us live somewhere here in Denver and we know full well. And the other half of us commute in here from somewhere in the Denver metro region. And we know that you know, that you know that we know, that you drive past six or eight good churches to get here. Maybe more. And I can only believe that you do it because not we do the music or the preaching better than they all do it, but because you're missionaries. Some of us are missionaries who live right in the mission field, and others of us are missionaries who live just a little bit out because that's where we can raise a family or where we work or whatever, but we come together in this city because we know that 90-something percent, when we started this church 13 years ago, it was 96%. I can't imagine this number has gone down. 96% of the people who live in Denver proper don't go to any church of any sort on any given Sunday. Bible-believing, spirit-filled, worship the saints and the ancestors, organ the size of your two-story house and everything in between. There are more unreached people in the city of Denver than every country where we send missionaries. This is a mission field. Make no mistake about it. We just get casual and sometimes forget about it because it's a mission field where the culture isn't so different as it was in Costa Rica. You know, they drink $5 coffees and pretend like it's normal too, just like we do. But it's a city in desperate need of hope. And you're a missionary to this city. And Jesus said, I love Denver, so I will build my church. And 15 years ago, 20 years ago, the trend began that the church, because of the cost of living and because the illumination of progressive society was sort of finding itself squeezed out and choosing to go down to Colorado Springs. The messaging in Colorado, it's not like the Northwest where they hate on you or condescend to you for being religious. They're like, cool, you do your thing, I do mine. You like Jesus? He's down there. Like, no, no, down there, like in Colorado Springs. You go there. That's Jesus land. We're up here. We don't do that anymore. I mean, my neighbors, when I tell them I'm a pastor, I live over here in Washington Park West, I might as well have told them I run a blockbuster. They look at me like, wait, I don't think people still did that. Like, my parents told me about one of those. Like, you took that thing and stuck it into a machine? Really? Like, wow, that's noble. But people need Jesus as much as they ever did. And Jesus is far from through with Denver. And 50,000 cars a day drive by South Broadway. And they look at that sign. I love the sign Anders made. It says, this is a church. Did you see that? And that just the fact that Jesus is not through with Denver. You can hate church. You can think church is irrelevant. You can continue to rage against some phantom machine because your parents' church did it bad. And they all look like a bunch of hypocrites or it hurt you. And that's bad. But Jesus is not through with Denver. And so he called this ecclesia together as missionaries to this city and as ambassadors of an enduring hope, of a lifetime of love. That's who you are. So the invitation this morning, it's Serve Sunday, is simply this. Jump in and build. If you've been here towing the waters, If you're finding your way to faith in Jesus or your way back to church after a long and winding and frankly hurtful road, you're safe. You're good where you are. There is room for you. And if you're coming and kind of taking or consuming, give. Participate. 
What a great time to reorder our lives coming into the fall. Jump in, become a giver. Like Rice has said, Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where nothing's gonna steal or decay. Jesus' promise is a guarantee. What better return can you ask for on your investment? So for some of us, this is the season to become a giver and prioritize in our most precious resources what we understand matters most. And for some of us, it's about becoming a giver with our time. Many of us, it's frankly easier to give money than it is to give time because we're all trying to cram 10 things in a nine thing container of life. We'd love to help you find a place to serve. Not me, one another and them. Church works when we all serve one another. This is Serve Sunday. I hope you'll take 10 minutes. When you go out, instead of going right, go left. You'll see the room right over there. There's probably balloons and our staff will be there. And uh, we'd love to share with you some of the ways you can jump in and serve one another and establish, build, advance Jesus' church. His church is plan A and it is the hope of the world. Amen? All right, would you stand with me? I promise next week we're going to go back and talk about, what about Peter? What about the rock? What about the Pope? He did say it. It means something. Ooh, I want to tell you what it means now, but I'm not going to because it's time to go. Father, in Jesus' name, bless my friends. Thank you, God, for saints of God that believe the ancient way, that hear the voice, that lean on the rock of ages, that refuse to bow the knee to the God of this age and that recognize a transcendent and eternal hope. Lord, make us ambassadors of that hope. Bless my friends as this week they go into every sphere of enterprise to which you have entrusted them. It is holy and we bless their work, their relationships, their communities, their volunteer service, their homemaking, child raising, relationship building, everything you've given them to do. Lord, would you bless it. Would you cause your life and strength through the unity that you gave us by your Holy Spirit to overflow from them and bless them back for it. As we lose our lives for Christ and the, and the gospel, may we find them abundant and overflowing. I thank you for this family of believers, this ecclesia, this church that you are building in the heart of Denver. And I bless it in Jesus' name.